This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of The Overcomers, God's Vision for You to Thrive in an Age of Anxiety and Outrage, written and narrated by pastor and best-selling author Matt Chandler, and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Today is June 19th, and you're listening to Quick to Listen, where each week we go beyond hashtags and hot takes to discuss a major cultural event. And today we will be talking about the growth of African Christianity in the UK. I'm Morgan Lee, digital media producer here at Christianity Today. I'm joined by my co-host, as always. Kind of not always. Not always. always. <laughs> I travel so much. <laughs> and you scold me for that appropriately. I think you like berate yourself, Mark, personally. <laughs> You're like, oh, I'm so sorry. I can't make it again. I'm going on XYZ trip. Exactly. But I won't be traveling for six weeks, although I understand you will be now. Yes, but I'm not going to miss a podcast. Don't worry, anyone, any listeners. Oh, I thought I was going to get to have the free hand for a couple of them. No? Okay. Mark has a pet podcast he wants to do that I've been vetoing. <laughs> okay. Can't tell him. Actually going to be here. All right, Mark, who is joining us? Our guest is Chinny McDonald, who works for Christian Aid. Uh, it's an international development organization uh, that works with the world's poorest. She's also done work with uh, World Vision uh, UK. So we, we're grateful to have her on the show today. How's it going? Hello. Thanks for having me. Where are you talking to us from? I'm talking to you from just outside London, England, UK, um, and the weather is really terrible. Uh, we like to talk about the weather in England, so I'm not telling you what the weather is. <laughs> That's interesting. You sound like you're just like next door. You have a great connection. So, Well, I will tell you this. Uh, suddenly, Chicago has turned into San Francisco. It's been really foggy the past couple yeah. weeks. Um, and when I came in this morning, I was like, okay. Now, where I come from, I was born in San Francisco. Uh, yes, I love it. I love the fog. All right. Well, brings back good memories. This is Mark's favorite weather. By the way, I neglected to say that Mark is the editor in chief of Christianity Today. And so, you know, if he says something that you disagree with, just write me. <laughs> take it up with that him. That doesn't seem to be a problem for many people. They just write me. <laughs> All right. Well, let's get into our really interesting discussion today. You may or may not believe it. But there are actually more churches than pubs in the UK as of this year. However, the number of churches has also majorly been on the decline itself. And according to a report from earlier this year, there are only 39,000 churches left in England, down a quarter from 20 years or so ago. According to this article, which is, was published in CT last month, the three biggest UK denominations, Anglicans, Roman Catholics, and Presbyterians, are all declining quite quickly. Overall, their numbers have gone down 16% in just the last five years. Presbyterians the fastest, and then their two other major groups are also declining, Baptists and Methodists, but they are much smaller in size. So while traditional churches are struggling to retain members, newer expressions of Christianity are thriving. One of those traditions are congregations known as black majority churches that include immigrant populations who are often in their third or fourth generation, originally from the West Indies or Caribbean, and more recently from West Africa. Not surprisingly, just as the story of the black church in the U.S. was birthed out of discriminatory practices, so too are black majority churches. 
The majority of these are Pentecostal, and many of them are based in London. The largest of these is the Redeemed Christian Church of God, a denomination founded in Lagos, Nigeria, that now has more than 800 churches in the UK. As we reported in this same recent CT story, the 4,000-strong Church of All Nations in Brent, West London, adopted the mantra, quote, a church within 10 minutes walking distance that comes straight out of the Nigerian bush country where no one goes to church by car or taxi. It's effectively the parish system used by the three largest denominations, but the RCCG pursue it energetically. You live near us. Come and join us. You'll enjoy it. We are warm and lively and you haven't far to go. Beyond Churches, CT recently covered a story of a British nurse fired for her job because of evangelizing her patient and offering to give him a Bible if he didn't have one. The nurse, Sarah Kutta, is a Pentecostal Christian and of African descent. After losing her job, Graham Miller, the CEO of London City Mission, defended her and suggested that she had acted in this manner due to her cultural norms. Many Ghanaian Christians have a habit of talking about Jesus all the time, even though in the UK it is seen to be culturally inappropriate. Praise the Lord for Sarah's compassionate heart and courage. This week on Quick to Listen, we wanted to discuss the growth of African and West Indian Christianity and how it is changing the UK church. All right. Well, we have plenty of questions to get into because this is a topic I am not super familiar with, though really looking forward to learn more. And I'm glad that we have this you on, Shinny, to talk about all of this type of stuff. I think the first place that I wanted to start is just by learning about when African and West Indian communities first started coming to the UK and what led them to come? Yes. So if we go back to the 1940s, um, the UK was recovering from the Second World War. The workforce had been greatly diminished. And so in 1948, um, the first kind of group of West Africans, West Indians from uh, from the Caribbean um, islands came over on uh, a ship called the Windrush, and they came over to um, help rebuild the UK, really. But if we think about who those people were, those people very much saw the UK as home, saw the Queen as their Queen. So they weren't uh, as other um, as they were potentially treated when they arrived. That was the kind of the first wave of immigration from black and ethnic minorities into the UK, so in the 1940s. And then more lately, the 1970s and 80s, Saw, um, saw increased immigration. So I myself, uh, I'm from Nigeria. I came over to the UK when I was four years old in 1988 uh, with my with my parents, not just by myself. Um, we arrived, and yeah, we, we came from Lagos, Nigeria to, uh, to London, UK. So we were very typical of Nigerian immigrants into, into the UK during the kind of mid to late 80s. Um, so there were, that was a significant period in which there was that kind of immigration. Um, in more recent years, we've seen more immigration from kind of Eastern Europe and European countries. That's our history. So I, I'm just curious, was that more reflective in your mind of what was happening in the countries where these communities were from? Were there factors there that were, you know, maybe pushing them? Or was it stuff that was actually changing in the UK? You mentioned the end of the Second World War, and I was wondering if there was anything else. Yeah, from the UK's perspective, it was very much an invitation to those African and West Indian communities to come and help rebuild the UK. Um, In the 80s, a lot of it was about um, increased aspiration among those West African communities who wanted um, a better life for their children. 
Um, so a lot of it was about socioeconomic aspiration. Um, so those were a lot of the reasons why um, people moved here in the 80s. And at that point, the UK was open to that was open to that immigration um, from those specific countries. And it's got a lot harder um, in recent years to be able to do that. Okay. So when these groups came over, did they immediately start forming their own churches? Can you give us a sense of the history of that? Yeah. So if I think about my own parents and our history, my my great-great-grandparents in Nigeria were products, I guess, of English missionaries into Nigeria. So my great-grandfather was an Anglican priest um, in in what we call the village in Nigeria, so um, the kind of rural areas where my family comes from. Um, and they, uh, my great-grandfather and great-grandmother, ran an English school, um, or a Christian school, they called it, for Christian wives. And what that meant was, in effect, they... Um, they taught Nigerian women how to bake cakes, how to drink tea, how to be um, very English, because being English at that point was synonymous with being Christian. So um, that was their uh, that was the history that we had. So we were very much Christian Christians um, coming over. So therefore, when we arrived, when people like my family and others arrived in the UK, they very much wanted to find a place to worship. So Christian churches, um, just like they had at home. And I think they were surprised then to be met with potential hostility from the host churches. So I remember examples when we would go to, um, I guess, predominantly white churches. We arrive on a Sunday and we were told kind of, well, what made you choose this church as opposed to the black church that was down the road? So there was very much at that point, uh, these white majority churches weren't used to seeing black people in their congregations and weren't used to having black friends or uh, black neighbours. And so the, the kind of communities were very much segregated. So that was my parents' experience. But I know that from the kind of the 40s, 50s, 60s, when West Indian and Caribbean communities arrived and wanted to go to um, churches, they were met with much more hostility because obviously in the 40s and 50s, there were even fewer black faces around. And because they still wanted to worship God, they had no choice then but to create their own places of worship and their own communities um, in which to worship God. So it was, wasn't out of choice that these black majority churches were started. It was out of necessity. I think there are also some complexities around being an immigrant, um, around belonging around identity, which also creep into these um, issues as well. My impression, uh, I actually have not visited Africa, but I have a lot of friends who've gone to Africa, even to Anglican churches in Africa. And they strike me as uh, the ethos and culture of an Anglican church in Africa is much different than uh, the ethos uh, and culture of Anglican churches in, in England. It would just strike me that a person come from Nigeria wouldn't necessarily appreciate, uh, wouldn't, frankly, wouldn't like <laughs> the way uh, British Anglicans. Did that play some role in it, too? They just sort of the church culture that people come out of in Africa as opposed to England? Um, I think there are all sorts of complexities because it wasn't necessarily that people wanted to find Anglican churches. So obviously people, there were Methodists and Pentecostals who went to those kinds of churches at home in their kind of homeland and then came over and wanted to find similar 
some of them did have experiences of the Church of England, the Anglican Church in places like Nigeria. And actually, I think it's not as simple. The story isn't as simple as that. So I find in my my relatives and my family members, there is a, a real sense of liturgy and of tradition and of uh, you know, hymn singing um, that are very, very foundational to um, the Church of England, whether you are in the UK or in Nigeria. And some of it might be presented differently. I know that in Anglican churches in Nigeria, they're just a lot louder um, and there is more uh, dancing and the services potentially go on longer. But at, at their very heart, um, I would say it's the same communion. I think the differences come when um, there are potentially other types of churches or other denominations that don't have as much of a sense of a global communion as the Anglican Church does. Um, however, you know, uh, it's not necessarily the case, therefore, that the Anglicans in the UK welcomed their Nigerian or Ghanaian brothers and sisters with, with open arms. That clearly wasn't the case. And so some uh, who had come from a, an Anglican church tradition in West Africa or in the West Indies then created their own forms of worship and communities in what we now call black majority churches. So some of the denominations that have grown over the past decades. We see that phenomenon here, and uh, there's a rebirth of Anglicanism in uh, the Wheaton area, and there are churches that are more charismatic, Anglican churches that are more charismatic flavor, and those who prefer that type of worship, more loud, sometimes dancing, <laughs> go there. And then there's other churches where I just went to another one this week, was very formal, in fact, uses the Church of England's liturgy to uh, to work through the service. So, Yeah, and increasingly in the UK, I think, um, whether they are multiracial or monoethnic churches, some of the Church of England churches, some are higher Anglicans, so therefore would be very much into um, uh, the kind of smells and bells, as we say. Um, so, but there are some that are just mixing up a little, so um, using more forms of contemporary worship or having different services um, th on a Sunday that will cater to different audiences or different preferences for styles of worship. I'm seeing a lot more of a mix. So I I'm curious... When we were talking about this research at the top of the show, I noted that a lot of churches are Pentecostal, and we just touched on this a little bit, but I'm curious, in your opinion, are people who are, are these African and West Indian immigrants arriving in the UK as Pentecostals, or is this something that they're being introduced to once they come to the UK? I think the danger in that kind of question is not recognising necessarily the diversity of backgrounds and cultures. Um, so when you, we talk about a West African person, um, they might be they might be an Anglican, they might be a Methodist, they might be uh, they might be a Charismatic, they might be a Pentecostal, and so obviously they bring with them to the UK the background and the cultures that they have come with. They might then be introduced to um, to Pentecostal churches here, or they might. A lot of them have grown up in Roman Catholic churches back home. And uh, a lot of the Roman Catholic churches, particularly in London, are very, um, very diverse, um, ethnically diverse. A lot of them could also be described as a black majority churches. So I think it depends on the background that we've come from. And I know that a lot, a lot of my Catholic um, kind of second generation friends are suspicious of kind of Pentecostalism or charismatic um, Christianity. 
So I think, you know, the same differences that exist among white communities exist among black communities. Would it be fair to say, though, uh, so, yeah, correct me if I have a misapprehension. I, just as the Anglican Church in uh, coming out of Africa is more expressive, enthusiastic, loud, my impression is is that 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 applies to the Methodists and the Presbyterians in Africa as well, and so that they when they come over, they would if they weren't formally identified with Pentecostalism, they would come with some things, some uh, cultural expectations that we would identify as Pentecostal. Is that fair, or is that even too much of a generalization? I think it is fair that there are cultural differences. Um, uh, as a Nigerian, I know that my Nigerian family are much louder than my husband's family, who are kind of white and from the north of England. Um, they are generally more expressive. They generally um, speak their mind more. Uh, they generally like to sing, dance, like a lot of food. And um, so naturally, some of the kind of cultural uh, differences would translate into expressions of worship um, in the places of worship. And I can understand why you know, coming to an Anglican church, if you've been from a kind of vibrant Nigerian background or a West African background, you might not be used to the kind of solemnity and quiet that you might experience and therefore not feel comfortable. I'm wondering if we can talk about some of the biggest churches, denominations and names in the Black majority church world. Who would you recommend that our listeners um, look up after the show to just kind of get more of a um, of a sense of who the players are? Well, the Redeemed Christian Church of God, which started in Lagos, Nigeria, is now one of the biggest denominations in the UK with 800 churches across the country. And the leader of that, the person who started that in the UK, is called Pastor Agu Iruku. Agu Iruku, I-R-U-K-W-U. Um, and he's a really interesting person in that he... Um, He's obviously the leader of Black Majority Church, but he really believes in unity across ethnicities and across denominations. So while he leads um, he leads a, the biggest kind of Black Majority Church in the UK, he also has really strong relationships with the Archbishop of Canterbury um, and with Hillsong um, churches uh, and with Holy Trinity Brompton, which is one of the largest Anglican churches in the UK. And he's also one of the presidents of um, an organisation called the Churches Together in England from different denominations. He very much crosses over um, into kind of more uh, white majority spaces as well. He sounds really interesting. So he founded this denomination, I guess, several decades ago back in Lagos and then ended up moving to the UK and church planting more here. Yeah, well, uh, it started in Lagos. um, It was pastored by a, a... Sorry, it was started by a pastor called Pastor Adeboye. Okay. Um, uh, but Pastor Agu Iruku um, leads the denomination in the UK. So that started, I think, in the 90s. Um, so it wasn't that long ago. But yeah, he's really interesting. What other denominations might be good for people to know about? The Evangelical Alliance in the UK that I worked for for several years um, is an umbrella organization of the church in the UK from across different denominations. So it has, I think, 80 different denominations that uh, make up part of its membership. And what the Evangelical Alliance has done in recent years is to set up something called the One People Commission. The One People Commission is about celebrating diversity and unity as well. So bringing together those 
church leaders like Pastor Agu Iruku, but also um, uh, Pastor Ong, who is the leader of the Chinese Church in London, um, the leaders of um, the Korean churches as well, as well as the um, as well as Tamil churches from Sri Lanka as well. I'd really recommend that people look into the One People Commission because I think that's a really great model of what um, uh, diversity and ethnicity looks like in the UK church and the breadth of different denominations. And also the conversations and the relationships that are built out of those, um, those platforms, those conversations. You then have, you know, the leader of the Chinese church of London speaking at something called Festival of Life, which is started by the Redeemed Christian Church of God and has 45,000, um, I would say 98% black and ethnic minority people there. Okay. So um, I think that's a really great example as well. People like Bishop Eric Brown, who has been here for a long, long time, who is part of the Windrush generation, who um, is one of the kind of key leaders of the black church in the UK as well. So in the US, you know, many times immigrants attend ethnically homogenous churches, but their children often end up moving to more multi-ethnic churches or leave church altogether. And I'm wondering the extent to which this is true in the UK as well. This is a real um, a real issue that black majority churches or mono-ethnic churches are dealing with in the UK. So, for example, um, you know, me as a, a first-generation immigrant, most of my friends are not Nigerian. Uh, most of my friends are not black even. So therefore, to expect um, someone like me who's grown up in a really diversity to then on a Sunday go to a mono-ethnic church, it's just it's just not going to work and it doesn't tally with the rest of my life. Um, and that is increasingly the picture across the board for ethnic minority churches. So um, people like Redeemed Christian Church of God are looking into ways to diversify their whole congregation to potentially change the way that they do worship and change what their leadership looks like, make sure that they are active on things like social media. They're really moving with the times. But I think, to be honest, as a millennial myself, I would hope that in 10, 20 years time that we don't have any um, monoethnic churches. Uh, because I don't think that the church should reflect back at a community um, any form of kind of ethnic uh, segregation. Um, I think that um, while maybe communities um, are mono-ethnic, potentially, I think increasingly they are not. I think the church needs to be ahead of the game rather than behind it. Um, So I'd hope that um, in the coming years, that we become increasingly diverse um, and that we become places of radical welcome to everyone, to people who um, who don't look like us. Uh, we think about how what we need to do to change um, and to mix up those congregations so that everyone can feel like it's a place that they belong. Uh, help me understand a couple things. So it seems to me, yeah, uh, the multi-ethnic uh, church model is is growing in a lot of respects in the U.S. as well. And this strikes me as a really healthy a healthy expression for the church. It does strike me, though, that let's say we had in a given community an Asian church, a Hispanic church, a black church, and a white church, and let's say they all decided to become multi-racial and multi-ethnic. It does seem to me that uh, at some point you're, di- you're, in a sense, 
sabotaging the unique culture, the unique black culture, Hispanic, Asian cultures that those churches have. I mean, I've been in Hispanic evangelical churches, and they are a wonderful expression of Hispanic culture and theology and preaching and worship styles. If that church was to become half white, let's say, a lot of that distinctiveness, it seems to me, would be watered down, and we'd lose the act. We'd actually lose the multiculturalism at some level. We'd have a an in-between culturalism. I understand the concern. I understand the idea that we should celebrate unique um, ethnicities and backgrounds and cultures that come with being an ethnic minority. But it's a really com- complicated issue. It's a really, these are issues of identity, um, of who we are in our essence. These are issues that I, as an immigrant, struggle with on a daily basis. So where am I from? What food do I like to eat? Um, where um, where do I feel at, most at home? These are questions of identity, and they really go to the core of who we are as human beings. But I think that there has to be, in the kingdom of God, a radical kind of coming together of all of those um, of all of those races, of all of those ethnicities, of all of those cultures, we have to be able to create a space in which um, everyone can feel like this is their home. And I think part of the issue here is that often um, people from minority groups who come to places like the UK and might be one of only a few uh, black or brown faces in a congregation, um, they are asked to diminish their own culture in order to conform to a majority white culture. And the issue that I have with that is this idea that the norm is white Christianity, as if Christianity itself is from England or is from the US, um, and that anything else um, that departs from that is other. Actually, um, Christianity (laughs) came from a completely different culture. If we really believe in the radical welcome um, of the kingdom of God, then we have got to try, I think. I think we've got to try to create a space um, where everyone can feel feel welcome. And that might involve some discomfort. Um, that might involve, as Martin Luther King says in, in his letters from Birmingham jail, it might involve some tension. But um, I feel like we need to try. I, I just happen to think there is there there will be and should be an ongoing place for churches of distinctive and unique uh, cultures. Uh, I think that's a strength for the kingdom of heaven. Uh, I think that, but I definitely think there should be multi-ethnic churches as well that express some of the values that you're talking about because I think they're biblical as well. I I had this conversation a few years ago with the leader of the Chinese church, and you know he talked about how when a grandmother um, from China moves to the UK and she wants to worship God. Um, we need to. We can't expect her to be worshiping God in English when she can't speak English. So therefore, um, a Cantonese service potentially is is the right service for her. But I guess my question back to you would be: What do we mean by what's a white church? What is a white church's culture? What does that mean? Yeah. Well, there. Uh, there obviously, there's different types of white churches. There's Pentecostal white churches. There's formal white churches, etc. It would be interesting to talk about what what do we mean by white culture, and that would be another conversation. But it does seem to me that in Scripture we we actually talk about there's a diverse element in which in Revelation it talks about 
the kings of the nations, then the nations will, will come to the, the holy city. But it, it, it's, it's, it's as if they're bringing their culture with them. So it does speak to both the things we're talking about. It speaks to the fact that these nations have, in, ca- in fact, preserved a culture that, in which God speaks to them. But there's also a place for them to come together. So it seems to me it's a both-and world. Yeah, and I think that, you know, there are, I guess, there are different uh, biblical passages that back up different points of view, unfortunately. So there's, you know, um, you know, neither... Let's blame neither. the Bible for being confusing here. No. <laughs> <laughs> if only it was more straightforward. Um, you know, neither slave nor free, um, et cetera. We, there are lots of, yeah, there are lots of different points of view. Right. And it is com- complicated and... I can will probably disagree with myself tomorrow, but <laughs> yeah, I do that a lot too. <laughs> this episode is brought to you by Preaching Today. Are you tired of chasing down quality sermon illustrations? Need fresh ideas for helping your message connect? Each week, Preaching Today adds fresh content to our database of over fourteen thousand editor screened illustrations. Quickly find the right story that will bring your message to life and help your people move closer to God. Get started today at preachingtoday.com. I'm I'm curious though, I want to do circle back to this multi-ethnic church movement and I'm I'm curious in your mind when you start to start to started to see that conversation um, gain some traction in the UK? It's definitely been a conversation that started in the, in the past 10 years, I'd say. Um, so I think before that, people were quite comfortable with this idea that, you know, there was a, a Spanish church here and a white church here and a black church here. Um, but that's just not how the rest of our society is. I feel like there are some real differences between the UK in terms of, um, I guess, ethnicity uh, race relations um, between the UK and the US, it's just a very different place. And when, um, particularly in London, where I've grown up, or in the big cities, you just don't have as uh, groups that are as kind of, I keep using the word segregated, but you know what I mean, um, that stick to their own. We're much more of a kind of melting pot of different cultures. So as this multi-ethnic conversation has kind of changed, then you were saying earlier that some of these black majority churches have often used that type of language to try to, to figure out the future of their own movements, um, which I find really interesting. How successful would you say that they've been in being able to kind of cultivate a more multi-ethnic congregation? Yeah, I think we won't see the fruits of that um, until, you know, the next 20, 30 years, because the issue is, you know, is, it, issue is one of numbers. So as the congregations get older, the, the, the members of the congregations who um, are first generation immigrants who have that sense of um, home being another place um, as they kind of move on or as they die their children have a, a see life or see their communities or see their kind of own identities and their own cultures in a totally different way. So I feel like it would be more, um, it would, things will just look different in 20, 30 years. I'm not sure how successful the monoethnic churches have been so far in kind of diversifying their congregations, but I think there are some key things that would need to be done for that to really happen. So we've seen um, uh, a lot um, in 
church leadership teams that try to diversify their leadership teams. So let's say a white majority church brings on a, a black church leader. Um, what you'll often find in those situations is something called white flight. So all those um, white people will potentially leave and go to another church and then that they will be replaced by black people because black people are apparently um, like to be led by black people and white people don't. So that is the so I think there's a real issue that needs to be dealt with in creating multi-ethnic leadership teams to be able to kind of keep the congregations mixed. There's a real challenge for um, white church leaders who are established to raise up other church leaders who are from non-white backgrounds to potentially um, give up their power or give up space or create other platforms for those church leaders to rise up. So I think that it takes relationship and it'll take real effort to do that. And I don't think it's an easy thing to do. When you're talking about relationship, one thing that I was thinking about was that you said that the UK head of the Redeemed Christian Church of God was also friends with the Archbishop of Canterbury. And I was wondering if you could just talk about kind of what the relationship between these black majority churches has been with the Church of England and how the Church of England has learned or grown from that particular relationship. With that particular relationship, it's um, one that models, uh, I guess, reconciliation, but also um, real friendship. And what we find, there are particular spaces within Christi- uh, the Christian church in the UK where the, the kind of congregations are, or the meeting places are more ethnically diverse. And you'll find both of those leaders essentially, you know, at the front in conversation with each other, you know, hugging each other and being really overt in their expression of their friendship with each other and I think that that has a real impact. The the Church of England has a lot um, to be thankful for for the black majorities in the UK because if you took out all the immigration um, into the UK over the last 50-60 years then the church would be you know almost non-existent in 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 the UK and I feel like um, Mm. the black majority churches um, really have this sense of vibrancy, the sense that um, they lend to this sense that the UK is still a Christian country with lots of Christians, lots of lots of people going to churches on Sundays. And I think that the, the Church of England itself is doing a lot of work behind the scenes, encouraging uh, black and ethnic minority uh, people into ordination. They're really being really intentional about um, black minority vocations, um, there's lots of kind of research being done as to why black people don't necessarily join the Church of England and become priests. So there's a lot of work that's being done there. Um, and I think that that will have an impact on the Church of England going forward um, in what it looks like in it not necessarily being seen as the church of the white people. In terms of um, how... The Church of England has had an effect on black and minority ethnic churches. The Church of England is the church that is listened to um, in the public square in the UK. So it is the voice of the church, whether or not um, it is truly representative, it, it is. So a lot of ethnic minority people look to the Church of England to be the voice of the church, to speak out on issues that the church should be speaking out 
into um, in the House of Lords, where we have the bishops, or the Archbishop of Canterbury being interviewed on TV, all those kinds of things. The Church of England has a space that lots of black and minority ethnic Christians don't have. And I think in that, there is a lesson um, in speaking the language of people being measured in our presentation of the gospel within public life, within politics, within entertainment, within within the arts. So I think the Church of England has, has a, a real effect on other churches in that. I wanted to circle back to something that we mentioned at the top of the show, which was this particular case of a British nurse who was fired from her job because of evangelizing to a patient. And we had read this quote. I'll just read it again for everyone. It said, many Ghanaian Christians have a habit of talking about Jesus all the time, even though in the UK it is seen to be culturally inappropriate. Praise the Lord for Sarah's compassionate heart and courage. And this was said by Graham Miller, who is the CEO of London City Mission. And I was just curious, what did you make of Miller's comments? I think it's good to have um, national church leaders affirm uh, affirm these uh, people who often get pushed into the spotlight for these kinds of issues, to affirm them and talk positively about their kind of courage and their passion um, for Jesus. However, again, it's potentially simplistic to say, to talk about Ghanaians, um, you know, how they speak about Jesus all the time, or there might be an element of truth in that when we talk about ethnic minorities and first-generation immigrants who are used to just being louder or being more expressive, less reserved than traditionally than than English people are. However, um, I think that despite that, there are some lessons to be learned in kind of communicating the gospel in a way that is um, accessible, in a way that doesn't necessarily turn people off. Um, I'm not sure that that kind of presentation will um, often lead to people wanting to know more about Jesus. From an American standpoint, um, as you may know, <laughs> there are many Americans who are kind of obsessed with the royals and with Meghan Markle's marriage to Prince Harry last year. There was a lot of talk about that. And then during the actual marriage, Michael Curry, who is the head of the Episcopalian Church here in the U.S., um, delivered the homily. And there were a lot of people who, or a lot of Americans, who were commenting on it and really fascinated and interested about that. And I was just curious if you noticed anything um, about the conversation that people were having about Michael Curry's sermon, specifically in the African Christian community in the UK, um, and what they made of that, if anything. Yeah, I think um, Bishop Michael Curry's sermon was great for the church in the UK. Um, it was great to have, you know, our national news readers talking about a sermon, about the sermon and what it meant, um, and the essence of Christianity and this idea of love. So it did, it was great for us. We, uh, as an ethnic minority group, I guess, were really proud on that day uh, to see Meghan um, marry Prince Harry, but also to have Bishop Michael Curry as a representative of the church in that in, in that situation alongside the Archbishop of Canterbury. Um, but I think there are some complexities, again, around around perceptions of black Americans and, and the black American church, which stereotypically among British people, including British um, Africans and West Indians would be of a kind of a kind of an exuberant 
preacher kind of person. Um, so he very much kind of fitted into that kind of trope or that stereotype. But I think that helped his message to be better received than it would have been if it had been from kind of one of our own. Interesting. Yeah, there's always layers when it comes to these things, right? About how they're being perceived and judged and received and yeah, we're not even always aware of how the all the different ways that we're processing something when we're watching it play out. When at least what I saw on social media about this particular sermon, there was a lot of <laughs> trying to screenshot different reactions that the royal family may or may not have been having to the particular sermon and the level of energy that he was bringing. That I think was also much remarked upon. Yeah, I think if the Archbishop of Canterbury, Justin Welby, had said even the exact same words, um, it wouldn't have been as well received. Hmm. I'm curious as we as we just wrap here, what major storylines are there that we should be watching? You know, how is God working in these black majority churches, and how can we pray for them as well? Yeah, I think in the next few years, and this has already begun, um, a lot of these churches are really looking. Um, externally to the needs of their communities, so engaging in social action projects and wanting to meet the kind of the physical and material needs of their communities as well as the spiritual ones. So there's a real generosity that exists in these churches, and that is really being harnessed for the good of um, for the good of everyone um, and all of their neighbours. So I guess it would be great to pray for them in that work that they would be bring real salt and light um, to their neighbourhoods as well. And I think just in the coming kind of months and years, as we continue to um, talk about Brexit in the UK, um, I feel like this is a real moment for the church to heal those divisions and be the voice of reconciliation in what um, is already a very polarised community. But there will be aspects of race that come into that as well, um, which the church should be a voice into. Awesome. Thank you so much for all this information that you shared with us. If people are interested in following up with us about this, they can do so on Twitter. We're at CT Podcast. We're at, also at podcast at ChristianityToday.com. And you can feel free to give your feedback there. All right. I just want to remind everyone that this podcast is made possible by everyone who subscribes to Christianity Today magazine. And one of the sections of our magazine is our books section, in which we have interviews and reviews and kind of heads up these books are happening. Mark, you took a look at our book section for June. What stood out to you? Well, uh, the opening book review on Waging a Smarter War on Porn by Mark Regneris. Without giving away, it was it's a, it's a book review of uh, Addicted to Lust, Pornography, and the Lives of Conservative Protestants. And I think it's good that he is doing—he's a very, very wise uh, researcher, and I, I'm really glad that he is uh, facing into this topic because it is just a huge thing for uh, evangelical, especially, and especially men, although more and more women are becoming uh, addicted to the, such behavior as well. And we've tried various things like software to block the sites, to willpower, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And I think we need to think more deeply about how we, uh, how we approach that topic, because it is, it is a pandemic, as they say. And I think he does a good job of thinking about that. So the one thing I like about our book review section, our book review editor especially, uh, Matt Reynolds, does a superb job of matching the reviewer uh, with, the, with the topic 
And in this case, it's Mark Regneris, who's an expert on, among other things, this topic. He's reviewing a book by Samuel Perry. But in the end, you get a smart review. You get a good overview of the book without having read the book. (laughs) But you can then decide whether you think it's worth your time. But if not, at least you're in touch. You're intelligently in touch with the conversation about that book. And I think that's one of the services a a good book review section can do. Yeah, I sometimes think a good book review is just about being able to engage in a shorter way an idea that it took a long time to really lean in and develop. So it's not just like, should you read this book or not? It's like the really thoughtful engagement. Yeah, exactly. All right, people can subscribe to Christianity Today magazine at orderct.com slash quick to listen, orderct.com slash quick to listen. All right, now is the time of the show that we call Precious Moments and wanted to give everyone a chance to share something that has brought them joy recently. Mark, that's you. Yeah. Well, it was just Father's Day. So what can I say? Got to go on a bike ride with my grandkids and my daughter and my wife. Got to watch the U.S. Open uninterrupted. Didn't have to get up one bit. Everyone kept serving me. Had steak for dinner. Oh, my gosh. Great day. I feel like there was another father in there, too. Did that father? That father had to work. (laughs) (laughs) So he didn't get fed until later. Yeah. Okay. He's a very dedicated nurse, and he works 12-hour shifts. So. Wow. Three days a week. So he's a hardworking man. He's a good man. All right. Where can people find you? I published something called The Galley Report, G-A-L-L-I, which can be found at Christianity Today slash The Galley Report, in which I comment on... Articles I've read, which generally have to do with uh, current events and trends that I think we ought to be thinking about. Awesome. Sign up for that. All right. Jenny, what about you? Um, Well, mine is really simple, but um, I have uh, an 18-month-old son. And just even in the past week, his... um, the new words that he's been picking up have been amazing. He's got like loads of different words each day and he's repeating them and he's just becoming his own little character. And it's just amazing to watch. Um, his word of the day yesterday was biscuits, 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 biscuits. <laughs> and so I'm just really thankful for him and the joy that he brings. Do you know what his first word was? Probably daddy. <laughs> <laughs> of course, <laughs> like usual. Unfortunately. <laughs> but I have to say an 18-month-year-old saying biscuit is very precious. Oh, thank you. I think he's a genius. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously. Where can people find you? Are you on social media or do you want to point people to Christian Aid's website? Yes, I'm on social media at Chinny McDonald. That's C-H-I-N for November E. McDonald. Um, and we'd love you to visit the Christian Aid website, christianaid.org.uk. All right. My precious moment, I think it's just going to be all the different family parties that I went to on Saturday. I went to a coworker's three-year-old's birthday party. Then I went to a high school graduation party. And then I went to some other random convoluted family party connection as well. So it was just a time of hanging out in a lot of houses with people. And I think there's something really nice about when people invite you in to spend time with their family. And I'm really thankful for the all the hospitality that people showed. Nice. Yeah, it's really nice. People can find me on Twitter. I'm at M-E-P-A-Y-N-L. That is it for us this week. Thank you, everyone, for listening to another episode of Quick to Listen. This podcast is made possible by everyone who subscribes to Christianity Today magazine. You can do that by going to orderct.com slash quick to listen. This podcast is produced by myself and Cray Allred. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, 
wherever you want to get podcasts we should be there if we're not there obviously always tell us and thank you to everyone who rates and reviews the show on apple Podcasts. we truly appreciate it we will see you all next week This episode is brought to you in part by Ministry Pivot with Russell St. Bernard. This podcast features important conversations with industry leaders such as Nona Jones, Bishop Walter Scott Thomas, Reverend Dr. Nicole Martin, and so many more. Visit ministrypivot.com or on all streaming platforms.